my name is Joshua Hirsch, and I'm one of the associate editors here at the JNIS. I'd like to thank Philippe Albuquerque and the entire editorial staff of the JNIS for allowing us to do this healthcare policy podcast. The articles in question are MACRA 2.0, Are You Ready for MIPS, and the episode, The PTAC, Cost, and the Neurointerventionalist. I'm incredibly pleased to be joined by, first, our returning friend, Greg Nicola. Greg continues to represent the American Society of Neuroradiology at the uh, RUC, a subject for which we've had a podcast in the past. And I think I say this uh, fairly, even though I'm his friend, uh, as the uh, most knowledgeable person in the country about the macro, which we'll be talking about today. Okay, that, that sounds a little hyperbolic, but as you get to know Greg, it's really true that he probably knows more than most of the people that have written the legislation uh, that we're going to be talking about today. He's an incredible resource, and I'm delighted to have him here. Joining us for the first time is a person I've only met via cyberspace, but that's going to be corrected very soon. Uh, his name is Andy Rosencrantz. Andy is a force of nature. Finishing a residency at the University of Maryland and fellowship at NYU, he joined the faculty uh, in 2009. His interests intersect with my own and Greg's in the era of healthcare policy, and in the short time uh, since he's finished fellowship, uh, he became an affiliate research fellow at the Harvey Neiman Health Policy Institute, which really is a very, very high point for a radiologist interested in healthcare policy. Of course, he has clinical activities as well, and in addition to being the director of health policy at NYU, he directs their uh, prostate imaging, a topic I promise we will not cover today. So, gentlemen, uh, welcome to this JNIS podcast. Thanks for having us, Josh. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Why don't we start with Greg, who I described as the most knowledgeable person in the world. So, Greg, you have uh, a little bit to live up to with that. I think a lot of people have heard about MACRA, but when you get outside of our uh, walls, uh, meaning our virtual walls, there is a a degree of knowledge gap amongst different practitioners. So recognizing that we have a limited amount of time, I, I wonder if you could explain to the listenership just what the MACRA is. Thanks, Josh. Uh, to make it clear, MACRA is actually a statute. It stands for the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015. Subsequently, we've had a rulemaking process around this law, and what the rulemaking process is, is basically the law is handed over to CMS, and CMS has to create structure to the law. The law itself is only about 100 pages, and so Medicare has a lot of gaps to fill in. So we've undergone a proposed rulemaking cycle where afterwards many stakeholders can comment and help guide the legislation and help show CMS where there might be some problems. Medicare reads all those comments and then subsequently publishes a final rule, which fills in all the blanks and hopefully crosses all the um, T's and dots all the I's for the program. The final rule was about 2,400 pages, so it's a very dense piece of regulatory language. And bad news is that this will be a yearly process, so this macro law will change the rulemaking process. Um, at least some of, the, some of the granular details will change yearly through a rulemaking process done by Medicare. For a brief summary of macro, so just so everyone in the listenership knows, MACRA is no longer called MACRA. It's now the Quality Payment Program. That's what Medicare has renamed it, the QPP. So you may hear that term several times during this talk. The QPP is interesting. There are really three broad categories of clinicians who bill Part B on where you're going to end up in the QPP. 
There are clinicians who don't meet the minimal threshold to even be considered in the program, and those are clinicians who have less than 100 Medicare patients in a year or bill the less than 100 Medicare encounters in their Part B claims, or have less than $30,000 in Part B um, Medicare claims a year. So if, if you're in below those numbers, you're actually not in this program at all and can continue to bill fee-for-service Medicare. Um, so you don't have to worry about um, submitting any kind of measures to Medicare at all, and you'll receive full um, Medicare reimbursement for what you do. Then there are other, the two other classifications physicians that you basically essentially have to be above that minimal threshold I just discussed about, and you're going to be in one or two limbs. There's a merit-based incentive payment system limb, which is called MIPS, and that's a modified fee-for-service limb tied to pre-existing Medicare quality programs that many of us have already heard of, um, for example, the Physician Quality Reporting System, Value Modifier, Meaningful Use. Those programs have been consolidated, the redundancies have been removed, and they've been combined into this MIPS performance program. So essentially, you'll still bill fee-for-service, but you're going to have to report into MIPS, which has four performance categories that you have to try to compete in. And basically, they're quality, cost of your care. You have to do certain improvement activities, and you have to use advancing care information, which is the new modification of meaningful use. You have to use your electronic health records in a meaningful way. Um, and you'll be judged on how you do, and your income will be adjusted either positive or negative based on how you have done compared to other people in the country across the board based on a total score that you'll receive across these performance categories. Finally, the last category is alternative payment models. The alternative payment model pathway is, is encouraged, certainly. There are some people in the alternative payment model actually will receive 5% aggregate Part B bonus payments on top of whatever bonus payment they would get in an alternative payment model for performing well and that only certain um, members or certain participants in APMs get that. Now, we'll go into that later in the discussion here. But also in the alternate payment pathway is a reduced um, on reporting requirements, so it's a lot easier than MIPS. You don't have to necessarily report as much um, into it. And in 2026, your conversion factor, which is the number used to convert your Part B payments, um, goes up quicker than it would if you stay in the fee-for-service MIPS category. So there's financial rewards and less reporting requirements in APMs that um, tr try to motivate people to go down that pathway, which in the end um, most regulators believe is going to be the, um, the future of our healthcare system. One thing I do want to add to this is um, I, I'm, the, on surface the program appears extremely complex. There's two things I want to mention. One is that we've already been doing MIPS, most of us. If you participate in PQRS and understand the value modifier meaningful use, you've basically been doing MIPS. So I don't want to alarm the people who are listening to this podcast. The other thing is that CMS has purposely made the first year, which has already started January 1st, they've made it, made it extremely easy. They want to walk people into this. They call it a, a transition year, and they phase in this entire program. And this is very important for everyone to, um, to hear. The first year, all you really have to do to receive a neutral adjustment in your payment is just submit one quality measure or one improvement activity for one patient, and for the quality measure, you actually have to perform on it, not just report it. And if you do that for one Part B patient and you fill out the claims form correctly, you are done for the year and you've protected your payment. So that's how easy the first year is. In the meantime, if you decide to take the easy pathway for the first year, you should prepare yourself for the more vigorous MIPS system, which will occur in 2018 and be phased in slowly after that. So just, um, I just want everyone to be aware that the first year has been made tremendously easy. Greg, that's a terrific and comprehensive answer. I think that 
it's clear that most neurointerventionalists will play in the MIPS arena. So I think it makes sense that our article focused on what we called uh, MACRA 2.0 on, on the MIPS and that maybe we dive in a little further. Andy, could you tell us about uh, MACRA 2.0, a little, a little bit of a deeper dive on MIPS? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. And um, you know, that was actually a, a, a great introduction. Um, I even learned a little more myself uh, just listening to that. Uh, so it was mentioned, so uh, most physicians, including radiologists, will be in the MIPS pathway. So to go into a little more about how this will work, so uh, participants will receive a, a, a final score that's a weighted total across the four categories. And, and how these are weighted will vary from year to year in the program, and, and also uh, there are other considerations that can be uh, given to certain participants, uh, as, well, as well mentioned. So there is some evolution in the exact weighting. Um, and in each category, uh, Scores will be received based on uh, decile performance relative to national benchmarks, largely based on prior year's performance, based on just basically, basically national averages. Subsequently, once, once having the, the uh, final score for a MIPS participant, the, 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 basically we're kind of being kind of graded on a curve against uh, what's determined to be our peer group, uh, which will lead to either uh, positive or positive, neutral, or negative payment adjustments. So basically the, the losers are paying for, for the winners. Uh, while, while there is, are some bonus payments, uh, avail, bonus points available for the bulk of the pot here, it's kind of a zero-sum game. So there's a lot of wrinkles here, uh, and, and by understanding this, there's ways to try to play this strategically and, and to be more successful in, in the system. So uh, Greg listed the, the, the four categories. Within the categories, there's various measures, and participants can select which measures they, they wish to submit. So in the quality category, groups will uh, submit uh, up to six measures, and there's menus and measures to pick from, including specialty-specific measures. So radiologists could go to find measures rele relevant to radiology and uh, try to select ones there to, in which they're doing well. But again, there's some nuance here. If, we're participating in a qualified clinical data registry, a QCDR, then we can actually pick any measures from the registry and not just the MIPS measures. So that would be really useful for being successful in this program. Uh, it would allow us to kind of give a lot more flexibility in a wider range of metrics in which the, we, our group is hopefully uh, succeeding in. So some other uh, nuances. For, for many practices, we'll be participating uh, not as individual uh, clinicians or radiologists, but as as the group level, they'll be using a group reporting practice option. And there, the whole group is basically evaluated at, at a, a single level. So uh, the, the group is basically picking its quality metrics and submitting measures at a group performance level. Um, and everybody's and basically receiving a group level bonus or penalty. And again, that adds more, you know, more, more to consider that maybe the, the, those in the group who are doing really well, kind of be getting everybody in the group, kind of everybody in the group is getting by based on those who are doing the best. And this can be relevant, say, in the multi-specialty practice where not even every specialty is being represented, at least in the current system, but uh, even just maybe a single specialty or group of specialties are doing really, where having the best performance can be carrying the whole group on its back. And then just one last wrinkle to mention is uh, some considerations for physicians who are deemed to have less frequent uh, 
face-to-face patient, uh, patient encounters or patient interaction. Uh, so some, of the ca- some of the categories in MIPS uh, really have measures that are most relevant to those who, are, who have very frequent patient, face-to-face patient interaction and would really kind of be beyond the control and not reflecting the day-to-day practice of those without the physician interaction, uh, the patient interaction. So based on build claims data, based on the actual claims that a, a radiologist group has submitted, individual or group can be deemed uh, not having frequent face-to-face patient interaction and receive uh, special considerations in NIFS uh, performance determination based on that. And again, groups will have to see how they fall in that regard as well. So hopefully that's helpful and not too confusing. That is helpful and not too confusing. Uh, there are so many areas we could dive deeper. I want to be pretty focused in how uh, we do that. Uh, Greg, you mentioned the go-at-your-own-pace, which really reflected physician and other constituent feedback. I, I think it is something that is uh, very helpful, but also potentially dangerous, which we highlighted in the 2.0 article. Would you agree that uh, going at your own pace does give you the advantage of not um, necessarily being exposed to penalties, but can limit your upside. Would you agree, and would you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the upside for the first year, regardless, is it's very blunted. So um, I don't think there is a ton of upside for the first year, even for those who participate fully in the program. But what I do think is that the the learning curve for, the, for those who participate in the program is it, you're going to be far along it, as opposed to somebody who decides to take the minimum reporting requirements the first year and then have to dive in more fully in 2018, they might not understand the nuances of how to perform or how to collect advancing care information, which many of the listeners will be uh, um, obligated to do on this this call. They're probably not going to be eligible for most of the non-patient-facing exemptions. They might not understand how to do improvement activities if they just decided to submit one quality measure. So I I personally think that is an okay mechanism, uh, and I'm glad that they can receive neutral payments. But I think um, once you you understand that and you've submitted that, that perhaps later in the year you can start trying the program a little more fully so that you're, you're ready to go in 2018, which as of now might be a full year of reporting in 2018. Now, of course, we, we don't have the 2018 rulemaking cycle started yet, but um, we certainly will learn whether it's going to be a full reporting year for 2018. If it is, it's better that you try to compete fully in 2017. And focusing on another area, Andy, this one is for you. The Affordable Care Act established something called physician compare. Let, let's say a doctor or a group said, you know what, changes occur all the time in healthcare. I'm a doctor. I don't like to pay attention to this stuff. I'm not going to participate. And like Red said, the worst hit is probably 4% in the first year. What are the implications as it relates to the Physician Compare website? Yeah, so uh, the Affordable Care Act included a number of uh, transparency initiatives. So the idea is to take this. So the CMS has a lot of data on physician, practice, hospital uh, performance, and making this available to patients, letting patients make more informed decisions. And also, that can also put pressure back on providers to, you know, improve to enhance their public reputation so that they'll do well in, in these initiatives. So, Physician Compare, uh, it's been around for a number of years. So, this is a publicly available website. Uh, it, it provides a level of information about individual uh, physicians. You can search by geography, specialty, the individual names. Uh, you can find practices, uh, solo practitioners, 
and it's basically uh, really be, being pushed up a notch in terms of uh, and data from MIPS, so basically how physicists are doing in macro will be incorporated into this and all become searchable and out there to patients. It's very relevant um, to this conversation. Because even if a group says, well, strategically, um, you know, Medicare isn't a large part of our reimbursements or we're not going to fully invest in trying to maximize our scores here, it, it still does influence their public reputation standing because this will all be out there on the web. I, I, th I think this has been previously existing, I think, at a more robust level for hospitals. I think the hospital compare program, they're very similar. There's been a lot of attention from the public and the media, and we'll see occasional articles about variations between hospitals, and, and I think we're going to see more and more physician-level public attention here and just making this out there. So again, this will, it's not just a matter, and certainly there's the big the dollars element, but I think this is also going to, there's a big uh, public uh, reputation element there as well. I think that that's really right, Andy, and I'm going to even drive that point a little further. So, in other words, for whatever range of, let's say, perfectly legitimate reasons, practices might choose to say, you know what, this is not worth our investment. We are not going to put uh, more time and resources into succeeding with MIPS, and we'll take the financial hit. We won't uh, worry about losing the benefit it will look or potentially look on physician compare like you do not have quality measures in line with your peers. So the fact that the site is getting more robust, the fact that uh, there will be uh, mandatory reporting on physician compare of these quality elements should figure into people's minds as they think about uh, their ability to provide care when their patients look them up in the future. I want to pivot a little bit again, back and forth sort of between the articles, but building on this thesis, Greg, we talk a lot about episodic uh, payments. I happen to think this is something that's potentially very relevant to neurointerventionalists and their future, but if I could ask you generally to explain what is meant by episodic patient care. There are several subcategories in episodic patient care. It can be broken up into disease states, for example, taking care of a pneumonia or maybe even a chronic condition such as COPD, or it can be broken up into episodic procedure-based care. It probably has a lot of, you know, impact on certainly the, the listenership here. And it can be fairly complex. This is still a fairly new area um, that Medicare is looking into. There's a couple episodic payment paradigms they already have out there that are, are mandatory pilot testing, including comprehensive joint replacement um, and they have a, a cardiac rehab bundle that's um, launching shortly, too. But diving into the stroke world or to the world that's more impactful on the listenership has been quite difficult. Stroke's a complex disease. Certainly, the procedures probably could have some episodic payments associated with them so that you can try to control downstream costs. But essentially, how an episodic payment works is you have to pick a trigger, which could be a disease or procedure. You have to decide what are the standard things done after or during that procedure um, that could be episodic or bundled into that. Then you have to decide um, what kind of sequela are expected or typical in that scenario. might not be directly related, but occasionally happen, and decide which one of those could be part of the episodic payment or bundle. And then you have to come up with a time frame of how long you want this to last for. Is it a 30-day bundle or episodic payment? Is it 90 days? These are all very tricky. You also have to stratify by risk of the patient. So there's a lot of work still to be done in this realm. And, um, you know, Josh, you, you and I have worked both um, on a Medicare committee on this and at the RUC 
I'm trying to come up with bundles and episodic payments and stroke and, and have realized how difficult stroke particularly is. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. There's certainly being pilot tested in the bundle payment for care improvement initiative by Medicare. There was a, a stroke BPCI initiative. So it's being tested, but um, I think there's, there's so, quite a few complexities in that specific category. But there's certain lo certainly lots of things a neurointerventionalist does that can be procedure episodic or disease episodic based payments in the future and, and, and certainly can be developed or are in the process of being developed. I would definitely agree, uh, Greg, and putting on my advocacy SNIS hat, these episodes are clearly going to be more and more prevalent. And do neurointerventionalists want to be part of defining them or do neurointerventionalists want to end up participating on systems that other people have uh, defined? And I, I think implicit in the question is the answer that I think is correct. Uh, moving from there, Andy, what is the physician-focused payment model? Okay, so that's um, a good question. So this is a new model that's really a product of MACRA. And uh, so we, we've largely talked so far about the MIPS pathway. It was briefly mentioned that there is a, an alternate pathway um, APMs or, or at least advanced alternative payment models in the context of macro, that's initially a smaller fraction of participants will be in. And at, at present, the existing alternative payment models are largely um, that's most relevant to primary care providers. And, and we, we think that APMs, are, they're, they're a good thing. These are good for improving care coordination accountability for the efficiency of care, but there aren't really many APMs that are uh, focused on specialists. Uh, there's one on oncology focused on episodes around the uh, chemotherapy, but uh, that, that's really, um, it isn't really all that extensive. So MACRA has provided a new mechanism for specialty societies themselves, for the stakeholders themselves, to, to propose, develop, and, and really design their own um, new approaches, new models that are relevant and make sense for them. So this is the physician-focused payment model, and it, um, you know, could, la could allow um, a specialty society to uh, come up with a new way to, to practice and, and be paid that, that's innovative and that either can either improve their quality, reduce costs, or both, um, and really broaden the scope of current uh, payment methods, uh, so, you know, whether it brings them some new activity, some new level of patient engagement, um, and really try to really alter things. So, I mean, the, 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 these generally focus on, on Medicare payments for services offered by a group of physicians, and it's allowing uh, the individual physician group to come up with the idea of how they uh, think uh, this could be done in a way that's meaningful for them, and ultimately achieve, I think, broader participation, broader representation in um, alternative payment approaches than we're currently seeing dominated by primary care physicians. That's a, that's a great answer, Andy, and I think provides further insight in how neurointerventionalists might play in this arena. If I can ask you, Greg, briefly to talk about the PTEC, which obviously has a very important role in the PFPM that Andy just described. PTAC, which is the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee, again, both physician-focused payment models and PTAC are creations of macro. These are straight out of the law. PTAC is a committee that has been formed under MACRA. It is 11 members that are selected by the Comptroller General of the GAO to serve on this. Seven of the members are physicians. 
but only two of them are specialist physicians. There's an allergologist and there's a cardiologist. Everybody, all the other five physicians are primary care doctors. The other members are healthcare-related type people, but not physicians. The idea of this committee is to review physician-focused payment models submitted by stakeholders that may be specialty societies or large practices or um, a number of people can submit them. The PTAC is supposed to review these models and then decide if they meet the goals of what a physician-focused payment model statutorily needs to do. And Andy nicely summarized that they have to either improve quality, um, reduce cost, or do both. Now, I want to get something across. And that, that physician-focused payment model could be an episodic payment, but it doesn't have to be. There could be numerous innovative ways that you can provide care. That as long as you don't increase cost and at least improve quality, they could qualify as a physician-focused payment model. And the PTAC has made this very clear. We've been involved with them since their inception and, uh, and been in listening sessions. And you know, all their sessions are public because they are um, accountable to the GAO. So, you know, there's something to watch very carefully. Currently, there are four models now available that have been are in review by the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee. None of them are necessarily in the JNIS world or radiology world. However, you're starting to see other specialties incorporate certainly radiology into their ideas of physician-focused payment models. And I would assume that stroke or many of the things that the SINS members and JNIS um, readers do in their daily life could be incorporated into other models. For, for example, neurology could be incorporating concepts that a neurointerventionalist does. So ideally, a neurointerventionalist would like to get, come forward with a physician-focused payment model on what they do and how they can provide higher quality care and then bring it to the PTEC. The PTEC will review it. The models are open to public comment and are put on the PTEC website for everybody to comment on before they're approved. PTAC then decides if they meet the goals, and then they forward it on to the CMS Innovation Center. CMS Innovation Center is where most of these alternative payment models have come from. In the end, CMS Innovation Center has the ultimate authority on whether a PTAC-approved physician-focused payment model becomes a pilot-tested model in, in the real world. So um, still all the, all the weight is, or all the decisions still at the CMS level. So it's uncertain how much influence PTAC will have over this, but the assumption is that they'll have some and possibly even more with the new administration. So that feeds into the last question that I want to ask you guys, and I think this has been an incredibly informative podcast so far, so let me thank you right now. There is so much uh, tumult in Washington these days. We're recording this in early January. Uh, the Senate has just been sworn in. People hear about the Affordable Care Act, MACRA, they may not be quite as up on all of these acronyms. Uh, what should they think about the MACRA, which uh, Greg uh, correctly pointed out is now called the QPP? What should they think about whatever we call this thing we're talking about that leads to MIPS, APMs? Is it going to disappear the way of uh, the dinosaur or other prior models, or at least for the time being, are major elements of the macro here to stay? And I would, I would ask, uh, Greg, why don't you start with that? I think that the tea leaves show that the major elements of macro will stand. The support of that is that, you know, this was a bicameral, bipartisan piece of legislation. It had a large majority Republican support. And, and I think the appetite to 
change this massive piece of legislation and rule. It just isn't there in, in Washington right now. Uh, I do want to remind everyone that in addition to forming all these new ways to get paid, MACRA also replaced the sustainable growth rate, which was a flawed formula on how physicians were paid and were leading to draconian cuts in the physician fee schedule. So in essence, MACRA, that was the main goal of MACRA was to stabilize the physician fee schedule. So if they replaced macro, they'd have to figure out a way to make sure the physician fee schedule was stabilized. And I can tell you that the finances aren't great, and certainly most regulators and policymakers believe that the finances aren't great in healthcare because of fee-for-service medicine. And so the concept of moving away from fee-for-service medicine is really universal in Washington, and it's not a partisan issue at all. So I think the concept of moving into alternative payment models is theoretically believed by most in Washington and in, in Baltimore at the CMS headquarters. Uh, Andy, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Agree completely. So I mean, it's not going away. Uh, I mean, that's uh, the I think bipartisan uh, pieces of legislation and you know, I mean, during during the prior uh, administration. I mean, it's po- it's possible that I mean, some elements of it could be uh, somewhat eased or streamlined a little bit. I mean. Maybe some of the requirements could be pulled back a little bit. There could be some more uh, exceptions added. Uh, maybe some some minimums or thresholds get a little adjusted, um, or be made a little bit easier. But with that with that in mind, I think the big picture is that that it's sticking around. Josh, if you don't mind, I'll add one thing: is that probably one of the most important things to watch, especially for a, a specialty that could be creating physician-focused payment models and alternative payment models um, that are specialty-specific, is that the CMS Innovation Center has gotten a lot of negative press necessarily from um, from Tom Price, who's, who's now the nominee for the head of the Health and Human Service Secretary. And that being said, he's been on the record saying that he thinks they have a little too much authority and he doesn't like the fact that they mandate episodic payment bundles, for example, comprehensive joint replacement. So how I see this is that if the CMS Innovation Center is not favored under a Tom Price HHS-led institution, um, that perhaps something like a PTAC would have more power and that clinicians who want to make their own payment models save them in instead of being forced to do them um, and experiment with them. There may be a lot more freedom to do that and and may be um, a positive, um, although there's other things that could be negative. So So I I will uh, take the ball from there and just say again, uh, prognosticating the future uh, holds many dangers for those that try. Um, I do think it's clear that uh, things are going to change in Washington. You just need to look at the latest headlines. The MACRA is a framework for moving towards value-based healthcare. And clearly, whether it's Republican or Democratic administration, that's something that is basically universally agreed to. So whereas I do believe that there will be changes to the foundational legislation, Tom Price is also on the record as not being a fan of meaningful use, uh, there is going to be a clear movement forward of this transition from volume to value. How long it takes, how we get there, those things may be in question, but I don't think the macro is going to disappear. My final thought is that I think the articles and the podcast appropriately focused on the MIPS. It's it's likely that 90 plus percent of neurointerventional physicians will play in the MIPS category. Greg mentioned in his opening comment, Andy followed up, that 
the MACRA seek to align various quality initiatives in a single score that is now called the final score. There are four different initiatives that in 2017 are being counted as three because one of the four cost is, is not included towards your final score. The SNIS was quite uh, ahead of its time in thinking about uh, setting up registries for uh, neurointerventional procedures. And again, beyond the subject of this call, borrowing from the experience at the ACR, who realized very early the value of qualified clinical data registries, uh, the, the SNIS is working towards the singular goal of converting its registry into a QCDR. So the Neurovascular Quality Initiative, which you'll be hearing a lot more about, is going to be a QCDR. Why is this important? Because QCDR allows you, Qualified Clinical Data Registry Reporting, allows you as a neurointerventionalist to fully participate in the quality reporting component of MIPS. And that, my friends, is how we will, for the most part, as a specialty, get paid in the future. Andy, I learned from Greg, but I also learned from you, Andy, during this podcast. I thank you both for your time, and I look forward to speaking with you again.